Welcome to another episode of Cork Out History, where we drink Portuguese wine and we talk about Portuguese history, well, mostly the wine. My name is Andre, and I'm Inês. And welcome to Cork Out History. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. How are you today, Andre? Hello, Inês. I am well, ready for another episode. And you? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Perfect. Today, the wine is not related to Pedrinhas. Instead, it's a wine that my father recommended. <laughs> oh, we'll um, take that recommendation. Exactly. Did you get the bottle? I did. I, I did. It has a very peculiar name, doesn't it? It's Herdade da Bombeira, exactly. which translated would be something like the firewoman's <laughs> estate, the firewoman's <laughs> farm. <laughs> I didn't even read it like that, but I guess it would be, yes. Yeah, <laughs> guess so. Um, yeah, I just read Bombeira as being a name rather than actually Firewoman, uh, but I suppose, there's, I suppose yeah, it's, you can translate it like that. <laughs> you can, yeah, true, true. <laughs> so this is from Alentejo as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I've drank uh, a few it's of those. a 2019 wine okay. uh, from Alentejo. I think by now it should be those people that know like, oh, 2018, that was a good year for wine. <laughs> But yeah, no. we don't. For me, every year is a good yeah. year for wine. <laughs> yeah, agreed, so very much agreed. <laughs> My expertise in wine is, uh, yes, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's go for right. it then. Yes, exactly. Let's try this one as well. Ching ching. Ching ching. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh great stuff great stuff we need to thank your father for it we do i love it there's so many flavors coming through i really like it that's gonna Perfect. be mm. so this wine will join us today to talk a little bit more about pedro and Inês, right just so yes if you listened to our last episode and if you didn't we really recommend that you do this episode will make a lot more sense if you listen to our previous one first The big overbearing question that we were left with at the end of it was... But why? Why did Inish have to die? Big question. <laughs> <laughs> And to get a bit closer to that question, we will need to understand the man who ordered that she was killed. So, who was this king, Afonso IV? Actually, let's start with his dad. Really quickly, I promise. Mm. So, <laughs> his father was called King Dinish. Uh, by the way, yesterday I was watching a YouTube video, and it was an English video, and they mentioned our King Dinish, and they translated it to King Dennis, which, okay, <laughs> fair enough, it must sound similar for foreigners but when i saw king dennis i was just like oh god <laughs> yeah it sounds like a kid that would do like mischievous it things does. Isn't it? Like... <laughs> it really does <laughs> yeah yeah so his father king dinish i think he sort of has a good reputation today wouldn't you say yeah yeah i think he does i'd say mostly because of his wife really queen turned saint isabel Shocker, right? A man has a good reputation and has his wife to thank for that. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, the legend goes that she had such a good heart, was so pious, feeding the poor and all that jazz. You know, the role a medieval queen is meant to play. Her husband, the king, at some point had forbidden to waste any more bread on the poor. 
Wait, are we sure that this guy has a good rep? <laughs> it's not for those reasons, yeah. <laughs> so, don't waste any more bread on the poor. And next day, walks into her carrying a suspicious load hidden in her robes. Straight away, he assumes he caught her red-handed, sneaking away with bread to go and feed the poor. Which, by the way, she was. When he demands she shows him what she's carrying, poof! All the bread turns into roses. How convenient, right? <laughs> it's called the Miracle of the Roses of Queen Saint Isabel. And it's definitely one of the most famous miracles of Portuguese history. Everyone knows about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think we learn about but, it in primary school and stuff. <laughs> yeah, but I think we took a little detour there, didn't we, Nish? So Ooh, We did, okay. So back to his father, King Dinish. His reign started well enough and he continues the policy of his own father where the royal power found its support on the people and the merchant class in opposition to the nobility and the feudal lords. So this was actually a period of relative peace, prosperity and progress. But it wouldn't last long. Nothing good lasts. Nothing good lasts. It's horrible. <laughs> and everything would change in the second half of his rule. In the Chronica de Don Dinish, or the Chronicles of King Dinish, a parallel is drawn between how King Dinish's rule started to deteriorate as his illegitimate prole started to increase and he become more distant from Queen Isabel. Shocker. Gets away from his queen, his rule starts to suck. <laughs> <laughs> we can find evidence of these changes in the fact that the court... How would you translate court? Maybe parliament? Parliament is a charged word, isn't it? But yeah, assembly. Yeah, the assembly. Where the, the dif different classes were represented. Exactly. So the court, they stopped meeting. The king made large donations to several feudal lords and then the war with Castile reinitiated. The feudal lords took powers which previously had been exclusive of the king, such as knighting someone or passing judgment. So this political landscape was the scenery for the revolt of 1320-24 and Prince Afonso, heir to the throne. This is the future king who will later order the murder of Inês. But here he isn't anything but a pup. Yeah, he was still a young prince. Revolted against his father, accusing him of planning to pass the throne to his illegitimate son, Afonso Sanchez, who was then the Mordomo Mor, which is the king's right hand, something like that, but had a very prestigious place. Exactly. King Afonso was basically jealous of his brother. And what might have been, you know, a small familial dispute soon turned into a civil war with the country divided into two factions. Broadly speaking, the nobility supported the king, whereas the towns, the common people, supported the revolting prince. So much so that the mastermind, let's say, behind the revolt was a commoner chosen by the prince, a lawyer who was the son of a carpenter. You can hardly go more <laughs> commoner than that. <laughs> and of course that the population's motives for the revolt go beyond the king's preferences of an heir. They were actually claiming that justice was gone from the realm, referring to social imbalances between those in power and the remaining population. So, you know, the usual. With the support of the people, Prince Afonso conquered many towns and cities, with the population actually taking matters in their own hands and overtaking castles themselves and expelling the occupiers. <laughs> in his second campaign, the prince head towards Lisbon. 
the king, his father, took an army to meet him, but part of the troops he headed deserted to the prince's side. Just a shit show. (laughs) (laughs) In the end, the king was forced to give in and exile his illegitimate son, the one he was supposed to prefer. Peace was brokered, offenses forgiven, and the king would die shortly after. Hmm. With the death of King Dinis, Prince Afonso becomes King Afonso IV, one of the main characters in our tale. Okay, Nish, I'm following you, but are you saying all of this will be relevant? Aren't yeah, going on yeah, a bit yeah, of no, a... seriously, I think so. Okay. So, bear with me. Afonso Sanchez, that illegitimate brother that Afonso was jealous of, I know, it's confusing. Brothers with the same name. They're both named Afonso. What the hell? But anyway, so the bastard brother and a bunch of nobles are now refugees in Castile. And they try to open war, but all these attempts are unsuccessful. Another illegitimate son of Don Dinish is accused of conspiring with the rebels and the kingly swiftly gets his throat slitted. We can see some foreshadowing here, perhaps. The king really isn't shy with his skills. And it starts pretty early on his reign. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) And he's going to carry on with that, so much so that law and justice become one of the staples of his reign. And there is an intense work of legislation being developed, which slowly centralizes the power on the crown. At this time, we see a couple of changes, like the imposition of a foreign judge, which means that the judges sent to administrate the towns are now chosen and sent by the king, rather than elected by the own town's inhabitants, which would hopefully aim to provide a more unbiased result and centralizing the rule as well. Exactly. And, and that still happens with judges, like you can't be judge of the town. I think the judges... Yeah, yeah. I think I'm. Yeah, well, it would make sense, isn't it? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Too close so, to home. Yeah, exactly. The involvement of nobles in judicial affairs was prohibited, and the custom of private revenge, which was an old tradition of the nobility to settle their disagreements amongst themselves, was also forbidden with that penalty. All this work being done in the legislation aims at balancing the social status between the classes. And this would also be a feature of his son's reign, King Peter, one of the main characters in our tale. Yes, our protagonist. Right. Okay. (laughs) So tell me, Inish, after all of this, what do we still need to know about Afonso IV? Okay. So there are two main war episodes during his reign. Firstly, there is the war with Castile, which we covered in the last episode. It started over a not very successful wedding alliance between the two crowns. So Princess Maria, who is daughter of King Afonso, marries the King of Castile. He then goes on to publicly prefer his mistress over his queen, humiliating his wife and causing a rift with Portugal. Naturally, King Afonso initiated a war to avenge his daughter's honor. Right. (laughs) Mm. So as we mentioned in our last episode, he also arranges the marriage of his heir, Prince Pedro, to Constanza Manuel, the daughter of a very powerful Castilian nobleman who opposes the Castilian king. Which, of course, spites the Castilian king enormously and he keeps the bride imprisoned in a castle, preventing her from actually getting to Portugal. (laughs) We strongly suggest you check our previous episode. It's really a story you can't miss. True. And then the second very important war moment takes place in 1340, 
and the army of the king of Morocco then crossed into the peninsula to join forces with the king of Granada, another of the Muslim kingdoms of modern-day Spain. And they attempt an invasion of the Christian kingdoms. This new threat led the Castilian king to then reach out to King Afonso for help, and together they would then try to face the Muslim forces in the south in the Battle of Salado, where the Christian forces actually won a decisive victory. This is actually usually considered the last of the great Muslim threats in the Peninsula War and definitely one of the high points of his rule. Yes, the Battle of Salado really is a very important point in our history, isn't it? King Afonso actually gets the nickname of the Brave from that battle. And these two episodes, the War with Castile and the Battle of Salado, really define his rule. So here you have it. It's now the year of 1340. The Battle of Salado has been won. There is now peace between Portugal and Castile, which means that Lady Constanza is finally released and allowed to come to Portugal to finally meet her husband and make some babies. Cue the music for our protagonist, Inês de Castro, who comes with Lady Constanza as her lady-in-waiting. Now the question is, how will Inês end up being killed by King Afonso? So who is Inês? What do we know about her? Well, she comes from an extremely wealthy and powerful family of Galician nobility. And she descended, although through an illegitimate line, from the Castilian king Sancho IV. Her father was Dom Pedro Fernandes de Castro. Yet another Pedro. The number of Pedros in this story is really getting out of hand. <laughs> and just to highlight how close everyone is and how close the Iberian kingdoms are at this time, when his father died, Pedro was sent to live in Portugal, where he was raised with yet another Prince Pedro, another <laughs> illegitimate son of King Dennis. This is totally impossible to follow in it. So brother to King Afonso, and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> okay, well, he was raised in Portugal, show. yes. He, yes uh, her father he had already links to Portugal, I get it. Yes, her father had already been raised in Portugal with the sons of King Dinesh, so there's links everywhere. Literally everyone knows each other. Right. So once Pedro goes back to Castile, he gets a series of titles and he becomes the Mordomo Moor of the Castilian king, which again is the right hand of the king. And this means that he's not only managing the affairs of the royal household, but also he's involved in governing the kingdom, as the distinction between the crown and the kingdom is not super clear yet. Yeah, not at this time, isn't it? So maybe I'll say if this was Game of Thrones, maybe we could say that he's the hand of the king, you reckon? Yeah, something <laughs> like that. But the list of titles of this man is very long. And the idea is that it's very up there. Right. And Inés's mother was a Portuguese noble lady called Aldonça Lourenço de Valadares. They were not married, and Inês was an illegitimate child, just like her brother Álvaro. From the same mother? Yes. So, basically, her father married twice, the first time to a Portuguese lady, and he had no children with her. From his second marriage, he had a son and a daughter, Fernando and Joana. We will talk about them again. And with Lady Aldonça, his mistress, he had Inês and her brother Álvaro. Now, 
even though we're talking about illegitimate children, everyone is very, very fancy. I spent some time looking at the relations and gave up the keynotes very quickly. We just need to know that it's rows of never-ending titles and everyone is related to King This or Queen That. Out of all of these names, one jumps out. So Inej was raised in part by an aunt of hers from her father's side called Teresa, the Lady of Albuquerque. Now, do you know who this Lady Teresa happened to be married to? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember Afonso Sanchez, the illegitimate brother that King Afonso had started a revolution over, jealous that his father liked him better? Mm. The one that King Afonso hated and would no doubt have killed if he had not run out of the realm? Well, in his exile, he had married the Lady of Albuquerque and raised young Inej in his castle as a daughter. I can't imagine that that would score any points for Inej on King Afonso's books. Right, so all this story was to say that actually Inez already comes with a baggage, with a past. Yes. Okay, right. Yes. Okay. I told you it was relevant. Yes, okay, now I get it. Okay, so all this to say, she comes with some baggage. <laughs> <laughs> so we're now in 1350, 10 years after Constanza and Inej had arrived in Portugal, and there is another revolution brewing in Castile. Yeah, the old Castilian king, you know, the one who had been a dick to both his wives, has passed away, and now his son with Queen Maria is king. Do you care to guess his name? Oh, don't tell me it's Pedro. No way. <laughs> oh, of course it's Pedro! <laughs> what else could it be? <laughs> oh. Like all the others. Exactly. So now we have King Pedro of Castile and Prince Pedro of Portugal. Anyway, there were bigger problems around because these are the years of the Black Death that's starting to spread in Europe. And there is a flux of migration from the countryside to the city, which also is going to cause shifts in power and social tensions between the nobles, the lower classes, and this reaches a different stage now. So this rebellion in Castile opposes the nobility to King Pedro, who, in simple terms, get his support from the towns and the people. Does that ring any bells? It's not hard to see the parallels between this rebellion and the rebellion headed by King Afonso when he was still a prince. And guess what? The leader of this rebellion is none other than João Afonso de Albuquerque, son of Afonso Sanchez and sort of an adoptive brother to Inês de Castro. All in the family. <laughs> Keep it in the family. But jokes aside, Inês became this link, this connection with the leader of the revolt himself. And it is very likely that it greatly influenced Prince Pedro to get involved in the Castilian rebellion. One of the records that's cited as evidence of this link between the Albuquerques and Prince Pedro is a letter written by King Afonso to the Archbishop of Braga. <laughs> this letter was actually used years later by a lawyer, João das Regras, in his famous presentation speeches in Coimbra, which we will get to discuss later on, in which he argues that a few years prior to the death of Inês, in 1351, in this letter written to the Archbishop of Braga, who was then in the Vatican with the Pope, 
King Afonso requested the Pope to not approve any marital dispensations to Pedro and Inês. So, please, Mr. Pope, don't let them marry. And that one of the reasons mentioned in his letter, do not let them marry, was that, and I quote, some relations of Inês were, through her, trying to do illicit actions. End of quote. And through the context and the date of this letter, we are led to deduct that he's referring to... João Afonso de Albuquerque, who was trying to influence Prince Pedro. Another interesting detail is that King Pedro of Castile will propose marriage to Joana de Castro, who is Inês's legitimate sister. So this marriage between King Pedro of Castile and Joana de Castro would actually only last one day, because the king would marry Joana, bed her, and refuse her the next day when he finds out that João Afonso de Albuquerque had organized a new rebellion against him. Can I just say how much this reeks of his father's antics? Refusing brides on the altar? No, actually, worse. At least his father had not better. I know. Sounds terrible that I'm saying it like this. Oh, at least he didn't better. But it really impacts women's lives at this time. So, mm-hmm. actually, he did marry, he consummated the marriage, and then he just walked away from it and refused us so that's not great yeah that's not great at all right so let me actually make a little detour here oh my god (laughs) (laughs) it's throwback time so two of the king's illegitimate brothers were part of this rebellion against the king do you remember the name henry of trastamara We have mentioned him in our previous special episode with Veronica from Past Pod about Queen Philippa of Lancaster. The events in that episode actually take place in the future of this episode. You see, eventually, Henry of Trastamara will lead the revolt against King Pedro of Castile. He will have him killed and take his place. How cool, right? Yeah, yeah. Now let's let's take you back to the present. The Castilian king's refusal of Joana de Castro would do nothing but just make everything worse. Her brothers, this Fernando and Álvaro, now have every reason to turn against the king, who has just jilted their sister, and of course that João de Albuquerque jumps on it as well. João de Albuquerque seizes this opportunity to bring the Castro brothers into the fold and decides to send one of them to meet Prince Pedro, who at the time is living happily with Inês. The idea is to convince Pedro to become the head of the revolt against the Castilian king. I mean, after all, since King Pedro of Castile had no sons, Prince Pedro of Portugal would be an excellent candidate to the throne, as he was the grandson of the Castilian king Sancho IV, exactly the same as the present king of Castile, the only difference being that Prince Pedro was a grandson to Sancho IV through his mother's side. Which just makes me think, haven't we just (laughs) said that Inej herself was the great-granddaughter of King Sancho IV? Yes, yes we did, you are absolutely right. That is the same Sancho IV that was the great-grandfather to his lady love. Okay, right. So they were actually cousins in some degree. And it's not a very far degree. It's not a very far degree. (laughs) No. So the way it works is Sancho IV had a legitimate daughter who marries King Afonso of Portugal. 
and that's Queen Beatrice, who is the mother of Prince Pedro, right? And he also has a legitimate son, whom King Pedro of Castile descends from, and has an illegitimate daughter, who is the mother of Inés's father. Simple! Not simple at all. <laughs> but anyway, the only thing preventing Prince Pedro of Portugal of becoming fully involved in the revolution was the determination of King Afonso, his father, who was actually still in power. So... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Prince Pedro is just a prince at the moment. Yeah. Who was really against becoming involved in any Castilian business. It is quite possible that this decision was rooted in his own experience when he also led a revolt supported by the people against his father, the king who was supported by the nobility, while now his son wanted to have a revolt of the nobility against the king who had the support of the people. So kind of the other way around. Yeah, just so. And now is the moment I confess that this whole episode might have been done under false pretenses. What do you mean, Inej? <laughs> so I kept leading you all on, promising to come to the motives of the murder of our lovely Inej, when in all actuality we cannot say we know exactly what these were. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, after all, it's not like we have a letter from King Afonso IV saying Inej had to die because... X, right? However, we can sort of surmise what his motives might have been now that we understand the man behind the order and the settings our tale takes place on a little bit better. I will now hit you with a bunch of theories. Okay, and these are not our theories. These are the theories brought forward by historians. We're not making this up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, we're not. So apart from all those things that we've said before that set the scene for this, the first year says that Inej had to die because she had always been the mistress, the adulterous relationship that was against the religious teachings and a stain on the memory of the queen, Constanza. Yeah, I'll say that this seems unlikely. After all, illegitimate relationships were extremely common. And honestly... Not that front upon, I mean, it wasn't that big of a deal. Although it is interesting to note that King Afonso himself did not have any children out of wedlock, which is a clear departure from the patterns of previous kings. Which adds another layer of understanding where these things come from, from Afonso. Mm -hmm. And also, if we add to this theory the fact that Pedro refused to marry anyone else when he only had one legitimate son from Constanza, the Prince Fernando, that could have put him in a difficult situation, especially because apparently the child was a bit sickly. So there might be a little bit more to all of this than initially meets the eye. Now, the second theory focuses on the rivalry between the Galician nobleman and the Portuguese nobility. And there's a little bit more to this one. So. Prince Pedro was actually very close to Inez's brothers, which was causing a lot of discomfort amidst the Portuguese nobility, who resented the influence from these foreigners on the future king. Yeah, the Galicians were ambitious, and naturally the Portuguese noblemen hated it. It's really hard to say how much these resentments and intrigues might have influenced the events, but, for instance, if you think back to our first season, 
all the support to our first king came from the Portuguese nobility, who resented and opposed the Galician's influence in court with Lady Teresa, and that support was what would make him king and removed his mother from power. True. Now, theory number three is that King Afonso decides to have Inês killed to protect the life of his grandson, Prince Fernando. So this one is based on the rumors that Inês, her brothers and any of the supporters might be planning to kill the boy to place one of the sons of Inês as the heir instead. I mean, listen, it is true that little princes have been known to have their deaths brought upon them in medieval Europe. It's not an unheard tale, right? However, I must say this strikes me more as courtly, heel-intended gossip rather than an actual plan. Remember that Inês had already been rumored of killing the first son of Pedro, the one she had been a godmother of and who died very soon after being born. So Mm -hmm. is there a common theme here, maybe? She definitely didn't kill the first child, but she was exiled because of it. Mm, true. So, yeah, I feel like maybe there's a common theme there. Yeah. On the other hand, we definitely cannot ignore that this plan would swiftly place the Portuguese throne in Galician hands. You can hardly aim any higher than that, really. Yeah, but anyway, all we know is that these are rumors that were going around and there's no evidence of this plot. Yeah, although if the king did believe it to be true, it doesn't really matter if it was true, it could be a motive anyway. Mm, true. And I do wonder, could the king sort of have seen himself in the little Fernando? Because remember that King Afonso, when he was young, was compelled to take arms against his own father because he thought he preferred his illegitimate brother to himself. So could he think something similar might happen to his grandson? Possibly. Possibly. And yet another theory, the fourth theory. Mm-hmm. The one that says that Inês had to die to preserve the peace with Castile and ensure that Prince Pedro was not going to go ahead and revolt against his cousin, King Pedro. Yeah, rebellion was burning through the ranks of Castilian nobility. The Castro brothers were neck deep in the revolt. Let's not forget that King Pedro had refused their sister Joana after marrying and bedding her. João de Albuquerque, close to Inês like a brother, since they had been raised together at the Albuquerque estate, was the leader of the revolt and wanted to replace the hated King Pedro with his Portuguese cousin, Prince Pedro. And we do know that the Castro brothers and the prince were very tied and how very, very tempted Prince Pedro was to head into the rebellion and claim the Castilian throne. And the records make it clear that only King Afonso's refusal kept the Portuguese prince in check. But for how long? This revolt really risked everything. The hard-conquered peace with Castile, the stability of the kingdom, who knows, even maybe the country's sovereignty, if things took a turn for the worse. And all for an absurdly long shot. King Afonso really must have felt that all his life's work was on the verge of collapse at the hands of his son. Prince Pedro was wrapped in this rebellious storm and at the center of it all, was Inês. 
Which just comes to say that, to be fair, it was probably a cocktail of all these reasons and all of these theories, rather than just a single one, because they can all coexist, they're not mutually exclusive. So this probably all played a part in yeah. Inês as the scapegoat, the reason, the problem of it all. Why Inês had to die? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The answer to our question, why did Inês had to die? For all of the above. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like check, checklist, all of the above. So what do you think? Which of the theories resonates most with you? Do you have a favorite? Yeah, what do you think yeah. that makes more sense? What's the one that's like, ah, oh, that's why? Yes, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> So with the death of Inej, another question rises. Did she die in vain? If the motive behind her death was indeed peace, then, oh, the irony. I mean, Prince Pedro, in his mad grief, declared war against his father, plunging the country in civil war. Wondering what would have happened had Inej not been slain is a game of what-ifs, of course. What we know is that this civil war lasted about six to seven months, which is not awfully long, all things considered, and without a great political impact in the grand scheme of things. Mm. Now, the consequences of her death, however, extend a little bit beyond the short term or the civil war, because as we mentioned on our previous episode, after becoming king, Pedro came forward and announced that he and Inês had actually married in secret, which made her queen of Portugal and legitimized her children, which was a big difference. Mm. After Pedro passes away, though, his son by Constança, Fernando, becomes king. Fernando, however, only has one daughter, and that's Lady Beatriz, who is going to be married to yet another king of Castile. And when Fernando passes away, there is an insurrection. To pass the crown to his daughter Beatrice means that the king of Castile will become king of Portugal. No way! Which naturally turned the attention to the other sons of King Pedro. He, as we said, had two sons by Inês and one son from a later illegitimate relationship years after Inês had passed away. This whole period will become known as the crisis of 1383-85, a time when there are several with claims to the thrones, and it is the period that immortalized the lawyer that we had mentioned previously. Remember, João das Regras. <laughs> Here we are again. Firstly, let's make it clear that João das Regras wanted the throne to go to João, the illegitimate son of King Pedro's later relationship. To achieve this, he made a bunch of brilliant expositions. João was illegitimate, so his tactic was to try and prove that none of the other candidates had a better claim than him. Which, in itself, is a very bold claim. It is, and it, it demands a lot of gymnastics in terms of making reality mm -hmm. shift. <laughs> um, no doubt. And so, of Beatriz, who was the actual legitimate daughter of the late King Fernando, he argued that she wasn't actually legitimate. This all stood on the fact that King Fernando had broken the rules and married for love. He had actually dissolved the political engagement that he had been in and married the wife of one of his courtiers. Her previous marriage got annulled, of course, but now João das Regras was arguing that that annulment had not been done. Can I just say, like father, like son? 
I mean, Fernando's marriage was very, very unpopular from the start. There were revolts in Lisbon when the king was about to marry Lady Leonor, for God's sake. That's a new level of unpopular in my book. And what did this fellow do? He pretended he was going to deal with the populace and then he ran away to get married anyway. He really persevered in his love against all odds. Definitely Pedro's blood, Another I think. love story. Another love story. <laughs> anyway, given this little story, João das Regras argued that their marriage had not been legitimate, that Lady Leonor was known to have affairs so that they couldn't even be sure if Beatriz was actually King Fernando's daughter, and that Beatriz had married her cousin, the King of Castile, but the authorization had come from the anti-pope. Yes, you heard him right. There's two popes in Europe at this time, and she got the authorization from the wrong one. A whole series of trouble that we're not going to get into right now. <laughs> and then Dona Beatrice's husband, the King of Castile, he also had a claim in his own right, but Juan de Regres was having none of it. He couldn't be king because he had broken a few packs and chosen the wrong pope. Heretic! <laughs> also, his claims were through his mother's side and nobody really likes that. So, no. No king of Castile. And then... There's the Sons of Inês. The whole reason we have gone into this tangent! <laughs> so about them, João das Regras says that the marriage between Pedro and Inês was not valid. Yeah, I mean, the king had announced it years later. It's true that a bishop had sworn on the Bible to have officiated the marriage. And there had been some witnesses, but the records were sketchy. For instance, nobody seems to have been sure on the date, although it had definitely taken place before any children were born. Convenient. Right. I loved reading João das Regras' arguments and he was like, the king himself doesn't remember the dates. He forgot his wedding day? Come on, no one forgets his wedding day. Therefore, this is all bullshit. <laughs> so then João das Regras also presents correspondence between the Pope and King Pedro, where Pedro requests dispensation for his marriage with Inês after the fact, but Pope denies it. So apparently Pedro and Inês really did get married, but since they were cousins, they needed approval from the Pope. And this was refused, rendering their marriage invalid for these legal purposes and making their children illegitimate after all. And with this masterful exposition, João das Regras proved that all the other claimants did not really have a better claim than the illegitimate son, João. And since nobody had a real claim, they might as well just elect one. And boom! Bob's your uncle. The illegitimate son becomes King John I. Don't worry, he made sure that João das Regras was handsomely rewarded for his services. <laughs> And this is actually our second throwback to the episodes on Philippa of Lancaster, because the new King John I is going to be her husband. Yes, it is. Here we go again. Right, okay, so we know all of the possible reasons behind the King Afonso's order to kill Inês. And we know all about Afonso and as much as there is to know about Inês. But what happened to King Pedro after his beloved Inês was gone? Well, we know he literally ripped out the hearts of her killers. 
he plunged the country into a civil war going after his own father. Oh, and dig up a body and declare his dead queen. <laughs> and then? And then? Then he should probably get some therapy. But what kind of <laughs> king will he actually make in the end? We can leave you with one clue. He was nicknamed both the just and the cruel. Or was he? You'll have to join us on the next episode to find out more. See you then. See you then. And this is where I'll stop for now. Join us on the next episode. Until then, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Corkout History Pod, where you can reach out to us, let us know your thoughts, and discover more about the episodes. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to us. Your comments really are crucial so that more people can find us. Bye! Bye.